Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this new series called Forgotten Christianity. I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the next three weeks about what it looks like to do church in a way ultimately that honors God and for us to take a look at if we're doing this right in the first place. And I'm excited about this. Um, so I want you to just, just for a moment, church, I want you to understand why we're taking the step uh, this week into studying this Forgotten Christianity series. Uh, over the past couple of months, we've talked a lot about what it looks like for us individually to get in a place where we are honoring God with our life. Uh, we talked about the importance of being connected regularly to a church and being freed from a, uh, the patterns of sin uh, and the patterns of this world. And, and we've talked a lot about priority relationships. We spent a lot of time covering that ground. And now that we have um, new people to our church and new people in relationship to God through salvation, we need to grow up and grow deep a bit. All right, so we're gonna take a moment in the course of this year to just gain biblical knowledge and wisdom and see how it works itself out in the context of doing church. So come with me over the next few weeks. There's gonna be some knowledge transfer today and there's gonna be some application as well. This is important for us to understand. Let me tell you why. Because about 2,000 years ago, as we've learned over the last few weeks, Jesus Christ stretched his arms out on a cross and died and shed his blood so that we would not have to. He gave his life. And in doing so, he purchased our forgiveness and our redemption. But uh, on th the third day, three days after he died, he rose from the dead. We're heading towards Easter. Some of you started Lent. You're offline right now in terms of social media, so you can't check in today. But those of you who didn't give up social media for Lent, check in at solacechurch.com. We'll forgive those of you who gave up, Lent, or gave up social media for Lent. We're heading towards, heading towards this resurrection event coming up uh, just in a, in, in, a, in a month or so, right? Jesus gave his life. He rose from the dead. And then we see uh, just a few days later that he ascends into heaven. He, he leaves us and he ascends, but he doesn't leave us alone by ourselves. He promises that if he's going away, he's going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And what was amazing about this is on the day of Pentecost, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, descends and falls on the believers and fills them. And, and during that event, we see these disciples speak in unknown tongues. In other words, they speak in the language of the people, a language that they did not naturally speak. And, and, tongue, and people from all tribes and nations on the planet were there. They heard it. And some 3,000 people gave their life to Christ on Pentecost Day. That is an incredible reality of the church. And then something incredible happens. These 3,000 people, many of them stay in Jerusalem, but some of them begin to spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And the church in Acts chapter 2 is really given birth. It, 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 it comes to life in that moment. Now, think about this. Jesus has given his life there are now thousands and thousands of followers of Christ. The church is gonna go rapidly in the next decade or so, in the next few hundred years as well. That, that, that demands some systems and some organization in order to do church in a way that cares for people in the way that they should be cared for. So this incredible movement, this, this explosion of, of Christianity onto the scene in the first century now demands that the leaders of the church, these disciples called now apostles, now become organized. What you see in the first century church is that they were, they were, not, uh, they were not well organized in the beginning. And because of that, there were some people being left out. There were some widows who weren't receiving the daily distribution of food that they should receive. And so the church began to realize, the, the leadership in the church began to realize, 
If we don't get organized, if we don't start doing this thing called meeting together effectively, we're going to drop the ball and some people are going to be left out. They're not going to be cared for the way they need to be cared for. And so they came up with a plan. We can't do it all by ourselves. We need to divide and conquer. Let's appoint some other men who are qualified to help us. They were called deacons in those days. I know that's an old church word, but it is the word that that was used. It's, it, it's deacons. They, they were these men who helped distribute food to minister to people. And then we see the church really kind of getting uh, organized in some house meetings, right? They began to meet together in houses. They, they met together and they studied the word of the disciples, the, the Didache. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. They studied the teachings of the disciples who received that teaching from Jesus. They worshiped God. They ate together. They hung out together. They did life together. Now, for a moment, I wanna celebrate the 21st century church because the 21st century church is taking a, a, a pretty significant beating in the broader church context about how the church in 21st century is kind of missing some things along the way. And we are uh, to some extent. But I wanna celebrate the 21st century church because today at Solace Church, we are worshiping and praising God. That's some good stuff. We are gonna, we are gonna study. Uh, right now, you're getting a chance to hear what took place in the life of Jesus and his teachings and, and the first century church. We're studying the church. We're studying his word together. That's really cool. We're hanging out together. I shook your hand and hugged your neck and we're gonna continue to do that. We're gonna eat together. Some of you are gonna go to lunch together. We're gonna go to my parents' house and eat together. And on Wednesday and, and Tuesday and Thursday and maybe even tonight, some of you are gonna get together in solace groups and eat together and study together and fellowship together. We look a lot like the first century church. I celebrate that. I mean, we can beat ourselves up and that's okay to think critically about how we're doing life, but we look like the first century church in terms of these bedrock principles, worship, um, uh, uh, fellowship, discipleship. 40 people gave their life to Christ last month. That's evangelism. God's adding to his church still daily, those who are being saved. I mean, we ought to celebrate that for 2,000 years, the church has been doing this thing called meeting together. That's a huge, huge win. But but. Of course there's always a but, isn't there? But are there things maybe that we missed along the way? Are there some things that took place maybe in the first century or first couple of hundred years of the church that hasn't necessarily come all the way with us through the last 2,000 years? So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this. All right. So <clears throat> I'm going to give you this morning um, uh, some, some information that is, that is extra biblical or outside of the biblical text. We are actually not gonna open to a passage of scripture this morning in the Bible. Some of you are gonna be mad at me about that. I'm okay with that. We study scripture in depth constantly at Solace Church and that's a critical part of our expression. Today I'm gonna reference several texts in the scriptures but we're gonna look at a text outside of the scriptures. There, there's, a, there's this first century text and this first century text was called the Didache. The Didache. Didache just simply means in English teaching. Uh, didactic is, is our English word that describes teaching. Didache uh, is, is a reference to a first century document. And let me tell you about this document. It's an incredible document. Um, some scholars believe, it's probably not the case, but some scholars believe that when Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2 that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that Greek word is didasko or didache, this Greek word that, that some scholars believe that the first century church dedicated themselves to this document called the didache. 
It's probably not the case, but at least we see that there was an early form of teaching from the apostles that existed from the very infancy of the church. That the the disciples thought it was very, very important that the first century church didn't just kind of go their own way, but there was uniform teaching and understanding of how the church ought to conduct itself. And so the disciples were helping shape the, the conduct and activity of the first century church. So this document called the Didache was written probably sometime between 50 and 85 AD, maybe as late as the very end of the first century. Some scholars date it just after the turn of the first first century into the second century, but it's very early on. Now, just to be clear, the Didache is not inspired. When you read scripture, the Bible, you are reading the 66 inspired books that God through his Holy Spirit breathed into existence through men who wrote down what the Spirit of God spoke to them and inspired them to write down. When we study the Bible, we are studying the inspired Word of God. It is God's revealed plan of redemption for man. The Didache did not measure up to that. It did not meet the requirements that, that, was, that, 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 that there were in the first century to be considered inspired or to be included, big word, in the canon of Scripture, in the 66 books we call the Bible. All right, is it so far so good? All right, so the Didache is not inspired. It doesn't have the same authority as the Bible. It's important that you understand that. So when someone would study the Didache, they would be studying an extra-biblical document that had significance but is not necessarily as authoritative as Scripture. All right, now, there were some early church fathers who were early church fathers. It would be like the second and third generation of Christians. Jesus handed the message of the gospel to the disciples. The disciples handed off the message to that next generation and the next generation, and that next couple of generations would be considered the early church fathers, basically speaking. The early church fathers, many of them disputed on whether or not to include the Didache in the, in, in the inspired books of, of the Bible. There were several early church fathers who believed that it was inspired. Uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church actually includes in their broader canon of Scripture a document that's closely related to the Didache, and they include it as an inspired document. All right, so, But it did not make it in. Actually, the Didache was a document that existed in the first century but was lost for some 1,000 years. Actually, it was, it was lost all the way up into 1873 until a man named Philotheos, what a great name, Brother God, Philotheos, Brother God, Philotheos, is the individual, and he was studying at Constantinople, and he was studying in a Jerusalem church. It was called a Jerusalem church, although it was in Constantinople. And he was, he was studying, and he found a series of documents. These were non-biblical. They were extra-biblical documents, but they were late, related to Christianity. And as he was studying all these different documents, he came across this one that said the teaching of the 12. And as he began to look at this document, he began to realize, wait, 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 wait. This document... This is the Didache. This is the document that our early church fathers referenced as, as the teachings or the, or, or, or the instructions to the church. And he began to read it in Greek, and he actually began to translate it, and, and, and it actually began to be translated in several different languages, but he began to translate it. Ten years later, he publishes this document to the church world. I read this, I heard this actually online, I believe that it's true, but as this document became published on the New York Times, it sold 5,000 copies in a single day. Now, back in the 1800s, that was a huge, huge deal, 
Right? So this document, now that was lost for, for generations, now in 1883, now becomes published again to the church for it to view. Right? So, the Didache, what is it? The Didache gives us a glimpse into the first century church and how they operated. The book of Acts gives us that. The, book of Did- the, the, the document, the Didache, also gives us a look as well. All right, so that was your history lesson today. You're welcome. You get one half of a college credit for that at whatever university you choose. What's it say? Non-inspired, but very helpful in us understanding what the first century church would have been studying and how they would have been conducting themselves as a church. I'm going to read to you, and this is broken up for our convenience. It's broken up into chapters and verses. The English translation, by the way, there are many different versions of the English translation of the Didache. I'm actually going to give you the Matt Blair translation. Yeah, I've got my bachelor's degree in theology, minor in Greek, and so I feel like I'm authoritative to give you my own translation today. You're welcome. I studied this document for all of 30 hours, and so that basically qualifies me as an expert for the document. You're welcome. What's it say? This is, uh, this is an English translation of a Greek manuscript, and this is what it says. The Lord's teaching, here, let's go back to this phrase. This is the start of the Lord's teaching, or the Didache, to the nations by the 12 apostles. This is the Lord's teaching. Jesus gave this instruction to us, and we want to give it to you. All right, now, this is primarily a document that was sent to the Gentile church. Because the church in Jerusalem had the apostolic authority. They, they had the disciples there, the apostles there, giving strict governance and oversight. But as Paul goes out into the Roman Empire and the gospel begins to spread throughout the Roman Empire, Gentile churches are birthed all throughout the Roman Empire. We have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinth, all these different uh, the churches in Rome, many, many different churches all over the Roman Empire. Now they need to be instructed on how to do church. So this document is an instruction manual for the churches called the Gentile churches spread throughout the Roman Empire. What are they supposed to know? Notice how closely this mirrors scripture. Verse number one of chapter one. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. That sounds like Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Sounds like the Old Testament. There's life and death. Choose life. Jesus also gives us the two roads. Paul also gives us the picture of life in the spirit and life in the flesh. These two different ways. And between the two ways, there's a great difference. Verse number two. Now, this is the way of life. First, you must love God who made you. And second, your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Sounds very scriptural. That's why it almost made it into scripture. Uh, And whatever you want people to refrain from doing to you, you must not do to them. You know what this is called? The golden rule. That's exactly right. A different way of saying the golden rule. Verse number three. What these maxims teach or principles teach is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. Moreover, fast for those who persecute you. For what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same. Man, it sounds really, really like scripture. Verse number four. Uh, or the or conclusion verse three. But you must love those who hate you and then you will make no enemies. All right, now it goes on to say. In verse 4, abstain from carnal passions. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other two, and you will be perfect. If someone forces you to go one mile with him, go along with him for two. If someone robs you of your overcoat, give him your suit as well. Man, Jesus could have said those very words. I think he did. Verse 5, 
or the end of verse four. If someone deprives you of your local property, do not ask for it back. You couldn't get it back anyway. I love the practical wisdom. <laughs> Just forget about it. Not even worth it. All right, now, stop for a moment. All right, now. Now the Didache is gonna speak into the practices of the church. I've given you some, some yellow here to, to just consider, so just kind of capture it for a moment. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to make a couple of observations, and we're going to talk about it for a few minutes. In verse 5 of this, this teaching to the Gentile churches, the apostles wanted them to know this, give to everyone who asks from you, and ask for nothing or no in return. For the father wants his own gifts to be shared. Happy is the man who gives as the commandment bids him, for he is guiltless. It's good. Verse 6. Or the end of verse 5, sorry. But woe to the man who receives. If he receives because he's in need, he will be guiltless. But if he is not in need, he will have to stand trial, or my translation, to be taken before the church. For why he received and for what purpose? All right, go on. He will be thrown into prison or held in confinement and have his actions investigated and he will not get out until he has paid back the last cent. Go on in the document. Verse number six. Indeed, there is a further saying that relates to this. Let your donation sweat in your hands until you know to whom to give it. as far as I want to go today, we're going to cover a lot more over the next couple of weeks. Fascinating as this document unfolds. But if you study at least these verses, and you also study early church history, one of the things that comes to light, and you can write these things down if you want to, is this. It's clear that the early church had a high view of generosity and accountability. The church had a high view of, of the church being generous, but it also had a very high view of holding those accountable who received the generous gift. And it also was clear, secondly, that the early church had a process that governed who received financial help. All right, now, I wanna to talk to you about this for a couple of minutes. Because as we start this series called Forgotten Christianity, it's interesting that we're studying a, a text that was forgotten for thousands of years that reveals to us, in part at least, how the first century church operated. And I think as you look at these six verses that we study, specifically verse six, and you think about this idea of generosity and accountability, I think maybe the church has lost its way a bit. So I wanna do a little bit of corrective teaching just for a moment for us together, right? You can say amen to this, and you can clap for this, and you can stand up for this, or you can just sit there and just take it in, all right, whatever. I'm okay either way. What's taking place here? It's very clear to me that in the first century church, in these Gentile churches that they spread out through the Roman Empire, that the, that the disciples, the apostles, wanted them to understand that the heart of God is generosity. Giving yourself away. Not holding tightly to possessions, but rather being willing to release possessions for the good of others. It is a biblical truth. It's actually cover to cover in the Bible as well. That the heart of God is generosity and the heart of his followers are also generosity. I did an entire message uh, just a little while ago, this, this, just a couple months ago, on generosity. So I'm not going to re re-talk about that entire message. Right? If you want to watch that, go back and watch it again. <laughs> I would encourage you to. But let me give you a picture of what actually took place in the first century. 
If you watch the first century church unfold, you know that Jesus gives his life and the day of Pentecost takes place and then the church becomes organized. And then what we see in Acts chapter four, and you're welcome to look there with me, but I'm not gonna have it on your screen. In Acts chapter four, something interesting happens. In Acts chapter four, the Bible says that the, 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 the church, the believers, they were, in, they were one in mind and heart. In other words, they were one in purpose. They got it, that Jesus gave them this commission to go out and make disciples and to love God and love people. He gave them this, and they were, they were passionate about it. And so one of the things that took place in the first century church is that God was moving on the hearts of individual people. And he prompted them to go sell pieces of property or houses and take the money and bring it to the disciples, the apostles, and let the apostles distribute those resources uh, to anyone who had need. It's a powerful picture. Now, if there is a, a, a word of practicality for all of us in the room today, it is this that God sometimes prompts us in our hearts to do ridiculous things like sell our possessions and give those resources through the local church, right? That sounds crazy, I know, sometimes, but that's true. God still does that today, that God prompts us. One of the things that we do in the local church today, and I think it's right, is that we call people to be generous on a weekly basis to give out of their income, what God has blessed you with, with income, that you give financially through the local church. I, I've, I've had several people uh, uh, talk to me since I preached the message about generosity, and they said to me, Matt, 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 listen, you can't preach tithe in the 21st century church because the tithe is an Old Testament principle. I actually agree with that. The Old Testament principle of tithing is clearly there. The idea of giving a tenth of your income is clearly in the Old Testament. And it's not specifically called for in the New Testament. But that's irrelevant because the first century church gave way above the idea of a tithe. They were generous beyond generous. They were selling houses and property and bringing that income into, into, at the feet of the apostles and laying it there, right? It was such a movement that a couple of people named Ananias and Sapphira got in trouble for trying to mimic the heart of generosity. Read that in Acts chapter 5. So the first century church gave out of, their, out, of their, out of their resources to the church. But here's what took place. Notice that they lay it at the apostles' feet. They're bringing this to the apostles so that the apostles can know who is really in need and how these funds need to be distributed. There was order. There was system in this kind of distribution. Now... Um, I, think this, I think this principle is, is an important, I'm not saying we've forgotten this one, but I think this principle is important that we as a, as a body of believers, as the church, continue to live out this picture of generosity. There's a high view in the church of generosity, and it's what the church is called to do. And if, by the way, if you struggle with generosity, man, you're going to struggle with Christianity because God's going to call you into seasons of ridiculous generosity, and you're going to resist that at every level if you struggle with generosity. It's just the nature of being a Christian, right? <laughs> Come on. It's part of it, right? But here's what's really interesting. This, this rocked my world the first time I saw this. In the first century church, people would come and they would have a need. They would say, okay, great, let's talk about your need. There was an order, there was a system, there was a process that people went through in order to receive these funds. Now, notice what, notice what the Didache says. He's, they're teaching the church. If someone comes to you and they are in need, you bless them, you give it to them. And I would say to you, as, as, as the pastor of this church, if there is someone in our church and there is a legitimate need, it is responsibility of our entire church to do whatever we can to help them in their time of need. If it costs us everything in our bank account to help someone, we do it because that's what the church does. If it's a legitimate need and God calls us to do it, that is why we bring our tithes, 
uh, our income into the church, our resources into the church so that we can give them away to help people in need. The church ought to always be doing that. The church should never be selfish, but we're willing to share constantly with those who are in need. And I celebrate that. And we have a great process at Solace Church for helping identify those who are in need. But here's what rocked my world, and it may rock yours as well. If the guy has a need and you meet that need, you're guiltless because you gave and he's guiltless because he has a need. However, if someone comes to you and you give them something, you hold them accountable for the gift. When you give away the resources, you make sure and follow up with them to make sure that they are using those gifts in in faithful stewardship that they are actually releasing those funds to get out of that place of need so that they can begin to function whole and complete in Christ. And if you find out that they are not doing that, you bring them before the whole church. And you have them tell the church why they use the funds the way that they use that. Could you imagine that in the 21st century church? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna pause in the midst of our service. We got a man we're gonna bring right up here. Gonna be an awkward conversation, but this is what scripture calls us to. And so Joe, Brother, could you imagine that? Here's what I think maybe the church has missed in terms of what the early church did. I think the church in 21st century is facing a real significant political correctness society that says that, that we, we've got to apologize for everything and make excuses for everything and holding someone accountable is just, it's too mean and too difficult and too judgmental. And I would say the first century church didn't have any picture of that whatsoever. They're like, dude, if you stole the money, if you didn't use it correctly, you're going to come and you're going to tell us why you used the money you used and how you used it. And if you did not use it correctly, you're going to pay us back because you were a poor steward of what God entrusted to you. <laughs> oh, that would be uncomfortable today, wouldn't it? Like, like, like this would be the awkward church today if that actually took place in the church today. And my point is, is that's exactly a picture of what God calls the church to do in the first place. Now, I want to I take a minute, just a minute, to speak about our culture and our government. And I want you to understand that I love the United States of America. I think it's the best country on the planet, the best nation on the planet. And so I celebrate the fact that I live here. So don't take this as me just trying to beat up and and gang up on our government. It's not the case at all. But I do wanna give you some perspective today because we have a welfare system in our state, in our nation. And I'm thankful that collectively as a nation, we wanna take care of people. But it was never the responsibility of the nation to do that. It's the church's responsibility. And one of the problems we have today in 21st century, uh, the United States in 21st century and the church in the 21st century is the church has relegated all that responsibility over the government and asked the government to do what God instructed the church to do in the first place. And so what's taking place is there's no great filter to understand who's really in need because you can't do at the state level what's required at the local level. You can't do at the national level what needs to happen in communities and in small communities and gatherings like the church. It just can't happen that way. And so we've relegated the responsibility and delegated the responsibility over to the state and the nation and the government of the the state of Oklahoma and the government of the United States is not equipped to do that. It was never the purpose of the government to do that. And so I'm not mad at our state and I'm not mad at our national. I'm more disappointed in the church that we ever gave up that responsibility in the first place. The church needs to be operating as the church, helping filter through those who are really in need and helping them in their need walk in freedom, not keeping them in a perpetual state of need. And the church is equipped to do it. And so I think the church may have forgotten part of our responsibility to be generous and hold people accountable. 
And I just would say this at the state level, because I know we have representatives even in our church, and, and maybe this message will get out online somewhere. I just want to say this, that I'm thankful for the effort and energy that our state puts in to try to help people who are in need. But hear me, the government is no replacement for the family. The government cannot be the father. We need fathers who are in their home taking care of business. And the government cannot replace that. And so I'm not mad at them. I'm just asking the church to be the church again. Now, I know we're up against a huge battle here. I get it. Because if we try to step in and actually do this, I'm not saying that I would actually bring someone on stage today, but rather we would hold them accountable in different forums and different settings, behind the scenes even. I'm really not interested in embarrassing people, but I do want to hold people accountable. I want to hold me accountable for stewarding what God's entrusted to me, right? And so I don't know exactly how this is going to look. And, and, but here's, what, here's my vision just for a moment. Just follow me for a moment. God has placed on our heart to start something called the refuge. You guys have heard of that over the years. And I want you to know that we are working incredibly hard behind the scenes right now to develop this local outreach center where people can come and they can be cared for and they can be helped in whatever their context looks like. And I'm excited about this. You know why? Because it is, it is, it is what I believe God's given us as a church to actually reach into this dysfunctional picture of the government doing what the church should be doing and step into that world and actually operate in a way that looks a lot like the first century church. That people would come and that we would meet them in their need and we would help them through that process and hold them accountable if they don't meet that need. We're gonna lose some people along the way because some people just don't wanna be held accountable. But how cool would it be if we were helping change an entire zip code because we were operating like the church should be operating? How amazing would that be if we raised up an entire zip code out of a poverty mentality into the freedom that God has called them to? And so I'm excited about this, right? What's been lost along the way, Solace Church is going to try to reclaim. Are we going to have some difficulties? You bet. Satan does not want this to succeed. He does not want the church operating as the church should operate. And so it's going to be tough sledding along the way. And I'm not going to ask Satan to bring it on. I'm not that dumb, right? But here's what I know. If this is what the church is called to do, then Jesus has already promised us the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so I want to operate, not in fear, but in faith, trusting that God is going to lead us on this journey and begin to, uh, and begin to break into this darkness and, be, and to begin to be the church again. And let's see what God has in mind, right? 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, God is going to do an incredible work in 74107 zip code in the surrounding areas, and Solace Church is going to be a part of that, right? I'm excited about this and I hope that you are as well. Now, I don't have any more time today. So here's what I wanna do in conclusion. I wish that I had more time because I have about 10,000 other things I wanna share with you, but we'll have to wait to another day. But here's what I wanna say, all right? This picture of the church is beautiful. Do you know why? Because it represents the heart of God so perfectly. I love you and I wanna help you, but I never wanna leave you in your place of need that I love you so much that I don't wanna leave you in this need, but I wanna walk with you and hold you accountable even so that you begin to walk in the pattern and the, and the way in which God ultimately intended for you in the first place. Man, that is the church at its best. All right, so by way of conclusion today, here's what I wanna ask from you. It's an interesting pivot, but I wanna ask this from you. Do you carry the heart of God in generosity? And are you stewarding even right now what God has entrusted to you so that you can be ready to walk with us in this new season that God is calling us to? All right, so I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. 
Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solidchurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast. 